Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode, which is part of a special series, New Books and Celebration Studies. Today I'm talking to Dr. Rebecca Dirksen about her book, After the Dance, the Drums Are Heavy, Carnival, Politics and Musical Engagement in Haiti, published by the Oxford University Press in 2020. After the Dance, the Drums Are Heavy is a study of carnival, politics, and the musical engagement of ordinary citizens and celebrity musicians in contemporary Haiti. Drawing on more than a decade and a half of ethnographic research, Rebecca Dirksen presents an in-depth consideration of politically and socially engaged music and what these expressions mean for the Haitian population in the face of challenging political and economic circumstances. The book centers the voices of Haitian musicians and regular citizens by extensively sharing interviews and detailed analysis of musical performance in the context of contemporary events well beyond the musical realm. Dr. Dirksen is an ethnomusicologist working across the spectrum of musical genres in Haiti and its diaspora. Her research concerns cultural approaches to development, crisis, and disaster, sustainability, diverse environmentalisms, eco-musicology, and applied engaged activist scholarship. She's professor in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University Bloomington and the founding member of the Diverse Environmentalisms Research Team. Rebecca, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm excited to finally have you here. Yes, thank you so much for your invitation. I'm delighted to join you, and I'm especially excited about speaking with you, Dr. Machado, as I know that we share so many uh, common interests, including Carnival. Yes, but before we start talking about After the Dance, could you tell us a bit about yourself and this journey that led you to writing this book? Absolutely. Um, But first, I'd really like to thank everyone who has so generously guided my path and welcomed me into their spaces and their lives, which in many cases has meant years of investment, encouragement, correction, exchange, collaboration, etc. It would take all the time we have uh, together today to name individuals who have been significant to me during this process, But I would like to recognize the artists most prominently featured in the book who have all been extraordinary in their commitment and interest along the way. These people include former president of Haiti, Michel Martelly, known by his stage name as Sweet Mickey, Lolo and Mimo's Beau Brun of the Grammy-nominated Roots Racine band Bookman Experience, Richard and Louise Morse of the band Ram that is in high demand on the world music circuit, Jean Toussaint France, alias Mathias, of the comedy troupe Mathias and Georges, protest singer and folk music icon Mano Charlemagne, who sadly passed away in 2017 as I was writing this book, BIC, whose given name is Roosevelt Seyon, 
a visionary lyricist and ardent advocate for the Haitian Creole language, and an unparalleled mentor for emerging artists, and Beethoven Uba, who is a towering figure of the Haitian music industry, who has guided his compatriots with socially conscious lyrics for decades. In addition, Senator Antonio Cheremi, uh, a.k.a. Don Cato of the Roots Reggae Band Brothers Posse, was incredibly generous to agree to my quotation of his band's song lyrics throughout the book um, in a section that features Brothers Posse's music. So many other famous, uh, famous and favorite musicians uh, helped out with interviews and agreed to allow me to quote their song lyrics as well uh, in the interest of documenting the history of Haitian popular music. I know that was really long, but I think it's incredibly important to um, call out and thank everybody who has helped help me out and um, for their assistance. I'm immensely grateful. Yes, uh, thank you. I appreciate you doing that. So returning briefly to my biography and how that's led to this research, right after earning a degree in piano performance from Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, I went to Haiti for the first time with Lawrence's cello professor, Janet Anthony, to assist with the summer music camp for the École de Musique Saint-Trinité. Over the next five or six summers, I kept returning to help out as a wind ensemble conductor, a percussion and piano teacher, um, and a collaborative pianist for student recitals. I had a great time. I learned a lot about life. And most importantly, it profoundly challenged my worldview. So one thing led to another, and uh, Haitian music, broadly speaking, became central to my research program as I progressed from a master's degree in musicology in London um, at Roehampton University to a PhD in ethnomusicology at UCLA to a postdoc at MIT before finally joining the faculty of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Since I've been at IU... I've also had a couple of residencies, which took me to Harvard and now to Yale. So maybe this all makes for a theme of perpetual motion. And throughout this entire time, I've been skipping back and forth across the pond, um, Caribbean facing that is, uh, to Haiti. I would say that my research is, is a bit hyper uh, kinetic as well, and that my interests span the spectrum of musical genres, from art music by Haitian composers to rap creole to sacred vodou, rather than honing in on one or two primary focus areas. Through all of this, I am most interested in what we might call um, grand challenges. So for example, attending to crisis and disaster, such as the 2010 earthquake, humanitarian aid and development models, um, politics and social justice, environmental degradation and climate change. Through all of this, I prioritize and apply uh, activist engaged approach, and I am interested in multimodal um, approaches to sharing scholarship in public spaces such as film and filmmaking. So um, this book in particular came about as my solution to a challenge that I was having with turning my dissertation into a book. My dissertation focused on music and cultural approaches to grassroots development as counterperformance to the Western-centric, poverty-fixated development models used by the glut of international NGOs um, operating in Haiti before and after the earthquake of 2010. This is an enormous topic with many essential strands that need to be untangled to even begin to grasp the whole. And just one of those was, was figuring out how to concisely define and describe the phenomenon of Mizikangaje, 
which might be glossed as politically and socially engaged music, and its critical importance to Haitian culture and history. As I was wrestling with the process of researching and writing my dissertation, and then moving on to a faculty position and writing my book, it happens that I was experiencing firsthand on the ground a very particular moment in time that encompassed the two significant and highly unusual presidential election cycles that immediately followed the 2010 earthquake. While the earthquake itself ushered in a years-long period of heightened disaster capitalism on a scale not seen anywhere else, simultaneously there was this extraordinary story unfolding about a hugely popular celebrity musician who became the actual president of Haiti. This was Sweet Mickey, or Michel Martelly, who, nearly three decades prior, had declared himself the president of Compa, which is a dance music genre, and who was the undisputed king of carnival for many years during the 1990s and early 2000s. Intriguingly, although perhaps naturally for a leader who was also a musician, carnival itself became a crucial metaphor and a performance practice that was leveraged both literally and figuratively from the presidential office. And accordingly, although building on a rich and long tradition of political music, there was also a rise in music that was speaking back to the the administration and to other politicians. So I was witnessing and processing all of this alongside my family and friends and colleagues in Haiti, And I was perceiving these events as being of global significance that were foreshadowing similar situations that we would see emerging across the world, including, for me, the rise of a celebrity uh, to the office of the presidency in my country of birth. And so Carnival became an essential way for me to study closely what musique engagée is and what it actually means for a musician to be engaged beyond the music. So let's talk about positionality, because you clearly positioned yourself here as a U.S. American ethnomusicologist who is, and I'm quoting you, neither qualified to give nor interested in making diagnosis or asserting what politics are best for the Haitian population. And uh, as someone who often also investigates places and communities I do not originally belong to. This really made me, help me think about my work. But um, could you talk a little bit more about your positionality? And and this is something you sort of showed, right, when you uh, acknowledged the, the folks who helped you. But how did you try to center Haitian voices, knowledge, methodologies, theories, and tools in this book? Yes. Um, thank you. This is such an important question. And it has many parts, I think, to its response. So I'll do my best to capture most of them. Um, So as you've noticed, you know, I'm a university professor, a U.S. citizen, um, a white woman born and raised in the rural Midwest, and formally educated in the United States and the United Kingdom. I also happen to have spent more of my adult life in Haiti than anywhere else. The capital city of Port-au-Prince has been the geographic constant across my frequent moves for education and employment over the last nearly two decades. So it's a place that I call home as I continue to split my time between the U.S. and Haiti. Um, So in some ways, I have really strong roots there as well, um, even though I do not originate in that culture and even though that is not the culture of uh, my birth. 
But of course, that doesn't give me any special privileges or rights to claim that I know how Haitian citizens should vote or how Haiti as a nation should govern itself or handle its democratic processes. I hold sacred and without exception Haiti's sovereignty and the Haitian population's right to self-determination, just as I respect those rights for every nation. This should really be self-evident, but as you know, in the U.S., we've just been through a very troubled election ourselves, and we need to think very carefully about what it means to criticize or intervene in the elections of other nations. Moreover, the American population at large is generally clueless about the U.S. government's extraordinary reach into Haitian politics and governance, especially over the last century, and that includes right now, today. Also, on the sovereignty point, recognizing Haiti's sovereignty is critical because of the Haitian Revolution, which made the exceedingly wealthy French colony of Saint-Domingue into the independent nation of Haiti. Although most of us in the North don't learn anything about it in school, the Haitian Revolution is among the absolute most important events in modern history. In vanquishing Napoleon's army and denouncing the global economic system of capitalism by freeing themselves from the institution of slavery, Haiti's independence in 1804 was the original Black Lives Matter movement. Yes. Beyond this fundamental stance, there's also the fact that I'm a music scholar. I'm not a political scientist, and I don't really have the tools, training, or interest to analyze the intricacies of local and international political machinations. So I'm not here for the punditry, and I'm not here to defend one party or candidate over another. Rather, I'm here for the music and for understanding the deeper performative processes, histories, and legacies that might have been central to uh, the political context. I think it's valuable to document specific acts and events uh, that have deeply impacted life for Haitian citizens from many angles and perspectives. And maybe even beyond this is the critical act of bearing witness. So in short, I believe that it's tremendously important to be attentive to what people talk about and how and what they care about and how, especially during turbulent times. So I tried to listen carefully and with great care, and then I tried to bring that process of listening into the book, which I guess is kind of funny in itself because that means somehow translating sound and movement into steady static text that isn't heard unless the reader decides to voice the words. And I suppose this is really one of the enduring dilemmas and delights, really, of ethnomusicology and music scholarship. As you know, having read the book by today's publishing standards, this is hefty at nearly uh, 500 pages. Um, And a lot of that text is given over to curated selections from interview transcripts from a wide range of colleagues in Haiti, from my neighbors and friends to musicians and public uh, figures, including those cited at the beginning of this conversation. I then do my best to contextualize these interviews and draw the connections between everyone's contributions. The entire book then is explicitly founded on the fully acknowledged and properly cited arguments of people I refer to as citizen scholars. 
And the reader gets to consult these original texts just as they would any other scholarly source. In other words, I'm prioritizing the theoretical ideas and understandings born and grown in the Caribbean. I start with how things are being uh, discussed and debated um, in the streets in ordinary daily life in Haiti. These are the conversations animating my neighborhood. These are the theories that emerge through everyday discussion. So this is my take on grounded theory. One very special aspect of this book is that all of the included interview and conversation excerpts are presented in side-by-side English and Haitian Creole, which is the primary language that Haitians speak. Um, Now, there's a, a prevalent misunderstanding that Haitians speak French. In fact, the the large majority do not come close to fluency, and a uh, linguistic apartheid, to borrow from linguist Michel de Graff, has persisted as a violent tool of suppression and exclusion. And so I am acknowledging this uh, context and um, find it critical to uh, find ways to bring this language into uh, formal scholarly publications um, in English, um, and including so much Uh, Creole is an act of scholarly activism driven by linguistics, and I found that the team at Oxford University Press was truly remarkable in agreeing with my push to publish so much in Creole when they knew well that most readers wouldn't be able to read it, except, of course, through the full uh, English translations. Um, So in continuing along with this practice of intertextuality, which itself is central to carnival play, Um, I incorporate tons of song lyrics while also directing readers to um, the music videos by the artists that are available online. Um, All the while, I offer these in-depth discussion of um, history, context, and meaning, um, including readings and interpretations from my Haitian friends and colleagues. So besides everything else that this book might be, it is also a detailed listening guide for dozens and dozens of favorite songs. Furthermore, there's also a companion website with selected videos from Fieldwork and short excerpts of interviews with key musicians, including President Martili, Bookman Experience, Ram, Matias, and BIC. Uh, Carnival is celebrated at the same time in all all over the the world, really, Uh, here in Brazil, in Haiti, even there in the US. But it has different specific characteristics in each place that celebrates it. I know this is a a complicated question, but what is Carnival like in Haiti specifically? My gosh, it's so many things. Uh, Even with an entire book, I've hardly managed to capture the start of it. And frankly, even if we could go on and on, I don't think we'd want to stifle the experience into a narrow description, which leaves me with a bit of a conundrum on how to start. So um, first, let's acknowledge the play, the joy, the potential for generating and sharing unbounded energy and imagination. Carnival itself is often conceived of on this cosmic level. It's like all of the issues we're wrestling with throughout all of time. In Carnival, there's the potential for finding a response and not a whole lot of off limits. So Carnival is often thought of in mythical proportions referencing forward and backward in time. Now, if we wanted to speak of Carnival as though it is a contained event, and it's not, of course, 
We would typically think of procession-based festivities in the streets on the Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday leading into Lent. That parading is called défilé, which I'll return to in a bit. But there's also a minimum of four weeks of pre-carnaval, which starts on the first Sunday after January 6th, which is the Feast of Kings, and which runs each subsequent Sunday until the weekend prior to carnaval. This period presents an opportunity for neighborhood bands and celebrity DJs to preview their carnival songs for the year for crowds gathered in effectively big neighborhood street parties. And then, following the formal three-day carnival period, there's the singular phenomenon of rara, which is a whole other thing entirely, but which fits the mood of the season and has strong connections to the pre-Lenten carnival. Rara essentially begins where Carnival leaves off at the beginning of Lent and peaks on Good Friday to usher in Easter. So returning to the défilé, during the three days of Carnival, which is the most important music festival of the year, if we're measuring in terms of artist participation, audience size, and money spent, it's all about the parade, the défilé. The parade goes almost all day and night from around midday to dawn, But what is happening in the streets is constantly transforming with different participants, activities, movements, and sounds. The processions usually start around midday and feature more family-friendly acts, such as folkloric dance troupes and children's ensembles. Around dusk, the scene tends to transition more uh, toward banapier, or foot bands, mostly comprised of musicians playing vaccine, um, which are bamboo or PVC pipe horns, and kone. Um, a type of long-necked tin trumpet, plus other brass instruments, drums, and percussion. Then, all throughout the night are the big flatbed floats powered by generators that carry superstar artists, many of whom are international musicians who return from abroad to perform. And the whole time, there are tens of thousands of spectators, either processing right along with the bands on the street or enjoying from the sidelines in elevated stands. For me, it's an intense sensory overloading experience, with everyone tightly pressed together shoulder to shoulder, dancing, shouting lyrics, sweating, and just generally being exuberant. It's significant to note that for decades, this national carnival was always held in Port-au-Prince. After the earthquake, there was newly revived and widely discussed rhetoric about decentralizing aid and resources, and this came to affect carnival as well. In recent years, beginning with President Michel Martelly, the government has pushed to rotate the location of Carnival each year between major cities across the country. Besides the National Carnival, though, the southern coastal city of Jacmel has its own special celebration, which takes place each week before the National Carnival and which, when there's no COVID or political turmoil, draws foreign tourists to enjoy the festivities. Jacmel is an artistic haven, And among its many internationally recognized artistic contributions are its fantastical papier-mâché masks of the heads of tigers, crocodiles, peacocks, dragons, and other imaginary beasts. Revelers dress as classic characters, such as stilt walkers, Indians, or Indians as they're called, the moor, or the dead, lancet cord, um, which are rope launchers that have similarities with the Jab Molassi of Trinidad and the Jab Jab of Grenada. Um, there's so much more to the spectacular Jacques Melian festival, however, and with these elements and many others, Jacques Mel's carnival may be more of a nod back toward history than other carnivals throughout the country, 
even as it features contemporary performance practices as well. And then also prior to the national event, some cities host their own children's carnival. Capaisian has done an especially fine job in recent years, working with elementary schools and bringing masks from the celebrated arts atelier in Jacmel for kids to play with and to learn more about their history. It's enchanting on numerous levels. I also mentioned Rara, which is sometimes described as a rural Lenten season carnivalesque festival. That's a quick and completely reductionist gloss, however, for something that involves the parading of competing foot bands that are also, more importantly, spiritual guards. And so Rara encompasses mystical work relating to Vodou, among other things involving important appearances at the cemeteries for the dead and the ancestors, and rituals and ceremonies performed at key sites like crossroads. Rara also bears Christian ties. Starting on Good Friday, Rara bands come out in full force to protect those living on earth until Jesus is resurrected from the dead on Easter Sunday. I write in much greater depth about Rara and After the Dance, but would also direct anyone interested to Elizabeth McAllister's wonderful book on the topic, which offers much more on the sacred significance and practical work behind this rite within the larger Afro-Haitian religious complex. So with all of this explanation, we're still hardly be- we've still hardly begun to understand the porousness and unboundedness of Carnival, which continues to surpass each of these aforementioned scenes and spaces. For example, we can't discount the importance of mediascapes, television, radio, the internet, etc. Like many Haitians come January each year, I eagerly await the release of each band's annual carnival music videos, which are often elaborately produced, extremely entertaining, and full of trenchant critique of current events and problematic personalities. Separately, carnivalesque verbal performance frequently enters political speech, from politicians, in the newspapers, on the radio, and in casual conversations around one's neighborhood. I look into each of these things in greater detail in After the Dance in ways that are difficult to do within the framework of a podcast. And we haven't even begun to touch on the underlying functions of Carnival, which I also extensively explore in the book. So describing the Carnival experience in Haiti, as you see, is really quite a complex endeavor. It was really fascinating uh, hearing that because uh, at the same time, there's so many new things, right? Uh, Different things in this description. But uh, it also feels very familiar to me as a Baiana, someone from Bahia. And uh, speaking of similarities between Haiti and Bahia, could you talk a little bit about the connection between uh, Carnival and the Afro-Haitian religious system? Yeah, that's a a really beautiful question, and it really merits an entire interview by itself. When we think of Carnival in general, we probably think first of its ties to Christianity as something that precedes the period of Lent. This is true in Haiti as elsewhere, although it's surely complicated because some Haitian Christians enjoy and participate in Carnival, others are ambivalent about it, and still others are fervently opposed. So there's, of course, a wide range of experience and opinion here. Yet you're also right to highlight the centrality of Afro-Haitian religious practices, including Vodou. And as you imply, I dedicate a great deal of space in the book to considering these metaphysical realms that sometimes intersect with carnival performance. 
What's easier to pick up is that the Lua, or Vodou spirits, often appear in the defile through costuming, for example. Those who frequently show up for the party include Gede, a spirit who stands at the crossroads of death and life, Aida Wedo, mother of the Lua, whose divinity is found in the rainbow, the moon, the water, and snakes, and La Sirene, the mermaid, the transatlantic corollary of Mamiwata. Symbolically, the Gede in particular is a family of Lua whose nature and performative praxis hold much in common with Carnival, in that Gede balances playfulness with criticism, delights in delivering vulgarities while calling out gross improprieties and abuses, can push people past their limits, and often strives to create disorder in order to remake order. Gede is sometimes known as a comedian, but is also a sage healer, literally as someone who knows the pharmaceutical properties of healing leaves, who can really get into the deep and painful wounds to purge them of their poisons and apply a healing salve. Similarly, in serving as a literal and metaphorical dumping ground for waste, excess, and critique of rottenness, Carnival itself, through the cathartic delight of dancing and singing from within an exuberant crowd, often serves as a form of crowd therapy, as a space to heal. On another level, there's also something about how Carnival facilitates or induces participants into shifting states of consciousness, how the drum can be used to propel dancers into transcendental spaces, how a crowd can come together, but often through separate movements and motivations, through collective effervescence to experience states of liminality. Lolo Beaubrun of the band Bupon Experience, for example, testifies that beyond representation in participants' costumes, the Loire themselves can sometimes descend among carnival revelers, nudging some of them into ecstatic spiritual awareness. This experience of being removed somehow from day-to-day reality and temporality, while still very much present and embedded within it, reveals carnival as a site of crossroads, which is among the most salient of wisdoms in Afro-Haitian sacred understandings. More specifically, in Haitian cosmology, the crossroads, or kalfu, represent any juncture in the road, any point of decision or site of reconciliation, and the intersection between physical and metaphysical realities, where there's negotiation between the visible and invisible, between humanity and the divine. The Kalfu is therefore understood as a point of magic, uncertainty, even danger. It's a locus for frictions, but above all, possibility. As Afrocologist and Vodou priest Patrick Belgard-Smith explains, the crossroads are eternal and representative of infinite choice and potential. And that's the power that Carnival can offer. Rebecca, welcome back. Uh, to our listeners, I'm having some trouble with my internet connection, so we uh, we got disconnected there for a minute. But I would like to talk to you uh, about something you mentioned here that you developed throughout the book, right? Two major avenues of inquiry. And I would like you to walk us through that. One is what you call a view of sounding as sonified mobility that can be understood through musical cartography. And the second is a consideration of carnival and the carnivalesque in terms of 
vagabondage. Uh, I know this is a huge question, but could you just tell us, um, explain those two avenues to our listeners? Absolutely. So with this first avenue of inquiry, I mean to refer to how many Haitian musicians have cultivated a sophisticated poetics of political thought through their musical oeuvre, and how when cross-referenced and heard together, these musical narratives construct broader archives of meaning. One artist I interviewed, Matias, even describes Carnival as an encyclopedia being written by musicians who are researchers with their ears open to the word on the street and who must strive to marry text, melody, and truth in their Carnival entries. This vision suggests that after we enjoy the songs live during the annual defile, We can, turn, we can return later to consult these sonic documents again as we try to understand how the political and social landscape was or is being experienced by certain actors and participants. It becomes like real-time documentation of the debates and concerns at the forefront of everyone's minds whenever that time in February or March rolls around. And so studying this repertoire from one year Um, to the next allows us to trace how histories are being made and understood. Besides being informative, this process is particularly fun to follow since many music groups intentionally connect each new Carnival song to last year's hit, which can feel like you're watching a multiple act operetta or video serial suspensefully unfold over the course of several years. Simultaneously, many rival bands engage in a sort of slow motion play with each other that can extend from one year to the next and again the next through cross-referencing, debating, and lobbying points back and forth in competition and in dialogue. In addition, much of the appeal of this cartographic metaphor is that there, there's a physical, bodily mapping of the geographic landscape happening as well given that a key part of the carnival experience is the collective parading through the streets. This gives us an opportunity to think about various forms of mobility as accessible to different cross-sections of the population, as well as about making and claiming of space. With regard to the second avenue of inquiry relating to quote-unquote vagabondage, I observed firsthand that this very common trope of carnival which is found in many iterations around the world and across time, including and especially in medieval Europe, for example. Anyway, this trope was dramatically rising in use in everyday conversation relating to politics and socioeconomics, well beyond the carnival scene. For anyone residing in Haiti in late 2010, 2011, 2012, well, it would have been basically impossible not to notice the proliferating use of the expression and any number of its variants. The term signifying range is very wide, indicating behavior that is roguish and unruly, or even corrupt or violent, all the way to the other end of the spectrum as describing silly or lighthearted rascality and playful and irreverent disregard for the rules. In one context, it might be used in affectionate chastisement of a mischievous child, while in another context, it becomes denunciation of the shameless flirt or philanderer. But this potentially very fraught expression holds even more complexity when observing that discourse about vagabondage outside of the carnival context was common prior to 2010, and it was often used to label the unruly or disruptive activities of 
especially dis disenfranchised young men. For example, interdisciplinary scholar Catherine Smith has done some important work on this rising phenomenon in marginalized neighborhoods in Port-au-Prince, which she discusses in relation to both the ravages of the contemporary economy on large segments of the population and to Gede, the vaudoulois of death and regeneration, who might be cast as a quote-unquote trickster spirit, who, um, and this is the critical part, heals through his trickster ways. Likewise, in my own research, I came to see that in addition to this deep socioeconomic critique, there's also a profound metaphysical connection here as well. Yet, it was really right around the time that Carnival star Sweet Mickey, or Michel Martelly, became a viable presidential candidate, and especially after he rose to the position that expressions relating to vagabond and vagabondage were suddenly popping up everywhere. Years before this point, Sweet, Sweet Mickey had effectively built his stage persona as a vagabond and was widely labeled as such, including by himself. That whole quote-unquote bad boy act is central to his charismatic stage performance, and his music business flourished as audiences have delighted in this over-the-top display over decades of his highly successful music career. So starting with this election cycle, not only was I hearing this term often multiple times a day around my neighborhood over the course of several years, but it was also in wide circulation on the radio, in the newspapers, on social media, even making it into several presidential addresses to the nation, including at least one delivered by Martelly's successor, Jovenel Moïse. Moreover, besides describing certain political actors as vagabonds, certain actions were being declared vagabondage politique, or politics of vagabondage, for example, in describing how certain self-interested leaders and elected officials aggressively leverage their positions of authority for personal gain. Or, even more troublingly, how certain multilateral organizations and international forces engage in dirty practices to exploit Haitian citizens and their resources while compromising Haitian sovereignty. With all of this going on, it therefore became a weighty task to sort out what all of this meant, all while the meanings were constantly shifting, refracting, and even more challengingly, being used and understood by people from different socioeconomic classes in dramatically different and often unaligned ways. I found such divergences in perception, understanding, and use certainly to be the case between highly educated elite members of society and citizens who were more on the street, the quote-unquote ordinary folks, who might be described as marginalized or associated with the lower classes. And since this book went to press, the term has only gained complexity and intensity in its charge with the continued rise of the current internationally-backed authoritarian regime. And yet, there's still another way to see configurations of this expression, which comes to light when considering that those pushed to the margins of society are much more likely to be labeled as vagabond, and that some among them wear this description almost as a distinction or a defiant badge of honor. These are the people who so often have been denied paths forward, who face centuries-old structures of oppression and violence that impede any sense of advancing in life. Still, some among them find alternatives to these suffocating structures, and they may engage in disruptive, but also often playful and resourceful ways of inhabiting space that emphasize, celebrate, and even flaunt their daily interventions 
that bring possibility to an otherwise uncertain existence. Much of this can be tangibly tied to acts of resistance and speaking truth to power, sometimes at great personal risk. Not infrequently, acts that push the envelope arise out of carnival settings, and some politically engaged musicians have encouraged their fans to take up their civic duties and challenge abusive authority through their musical offerings. This is how Carnival and the Carnivalesque can sometimes even become a space for performing citizenship from below. And so, whereas vagabondage is often cast in a negative light, it can and is simultaneously being actively reimagined as a creative and productive force. To distinguish this latter meaning, I use the expression creative vagabondage to describe these resistance arts of navigating conditions of impossibility in an attempt to achieve a meaningful future. As in, for those who have been systematically denied full participation in society as citizens, that is through explicit exclusion from full participation in government, education, and the formal economy, creative vagabondage may be one way to work toward political personhood and embodied power with dignity. In the face of relentless precarity, it adds the choice to be hopeful, even when there is no room for, fo- for hope. As one friend who knew a life of extreme marginalization far too well told me, it's better to be a vagabond than a sans avenir or a person without a future. Because one day, he said, playing on the last syllable of vagabond, boom, which on its own means good, because one day, as a vagabond, you might be good. And and these two avenues, they provide great paths for other um, carnival scholars, such as myself. I know I have been thinking about or incorporating the idea of creative uh, vagabondage in my study of some street performers in Mobile, Alabama. So thank you for that. Let's talk about the the structure of the book. As you mentioned here, your uh, the book is not linear; it's spiral. Could you explain to any listeners who are not familiar with the concept? Could you talk about a spiralism and how does it inform your approach here? Yeah, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to respond to this as well. So. Spiralism is a literary movement that originated in the 1960s among Haitian author-artists Frank Etienne, Jean-Claude Fignolet, and René Philoctet, in counterpoint to more dominant literary traditions of the Caribbean, such as indigenism, creolite, and negritude. As an expression of Black radicalism, spiralism is both anti-imperialist and decolonial in nature and objective, and it became associated with resistance efforts against the Duvalier dictatorships. As a narrative aesthetic informed by oral tradition, spiralism refuses confinement to linear time or chronological argument and considers that the past, present, and future concurrently exist. It rejects clearly defined boundaries for center and periphery, dominant and marginal. It's about frictions, refractions, tangents, disorientation, turning back on oneself to re-examine from a different angle, and seeing that each thing moving along its path eventually transforms into its opposite. Rather than the heroes with their sweeping grand narratives, it asks us to take seriously the complicated anti-heroes and mixed-up plot lines. It views quote-unquote schizophrenia 
as the modality that makes most sense in this confused world. And spiralism finds its form in nature, in the, hur in the hurricane, the nautilus, the double helix structure of, of DNA, the galaxy. In reflecting all of these things, spiralism might be seen as a literary corollary to carnival. One specific invocation of spiralism in this book lies in how I see the core double tensions of engage, politically engaged, and enrage, worked up, enraged, on the one hand, and carnival festivities and political protests on the other. Rather than two sets of binaries, I imagine and experience these pairings as intertwined spirals, like a double helix. Moving through the book, I make the case for how easily blurred and overlapping these definitions can be. For example, we might see how, under some circumstances, carnival can be, become protest, and political protest can shift toward carnival. Or how being arrangé can become being engagé, and vice versa and vice versa. It's definitely not always the case, but the possibility is there. Moreover, there's deeply layered information here that requires the commitment to turning back and re-examining each detail from different parts of that spiral to find the connections and intertwined conversations. This turning back also happens each time I introduce a new art artist or band to explore what the connections between carnival and politics are through their perspectives. And that adds to this prismatic, ever-spiraling experience of carnival that I try to bring the reader into through my writing. For anyone interested, literary scholar Kaima Glover has an excellent book on spiralism called Haiti Unbound. In addition, thanks to Glover, several of Frank Etienne's books have now been translated into English, including Ready to Burst, and he has a musical album available online with track titles such as Cacophonies and Schizophrenic City. Also, while I won't get into it now in the interest of time, I find that spiralism pairs well with Antonio Benita Rojo's notion of repeating islands and chaos with a capital C, about which he writes, chaos looks toward everything that repeats, reproduces, grows, decays, unfolds, flows, spins, vibrates, seethes. This is yet another Caribbean originating theoretical framework that informs this project. And finally, on a more personal note, I'm instinctively drawn to the spiral structure. From my childhood, I've marveled at the beauty of fossilized ammonites. I always have one on my desk. Yes, and it's, uh, I'm glad you brought this up, right? That it's a, a, a Caribbean framework that uh, we desperately need. I think the, the field of carnival studies is still very, unfortunately, Eurocentric. So I'm glad that your, your book will help folks move out of that framework. So that's great. A few chapters here discuss the 2010-2011 election cycle. It was the first one after the devastating earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010, right? Could you briefly uh, provide the context of the election and introduce some of the main players? Yes, of course. So the 2010-2011 election cycle in Haiti was bound to be unusual no matter what, given that it followed the earthquake um, in January 2010, as you said, that killed up to 300,000 people and displaced more than 1.5 million people. 
That disaster was then followed by a tsunami of international rescue, aid and humanitarian efforts, uh, plus a rush to establish thousands of new international NGOs and charities. While some of this outside assistance was indeed essential and truly helpful, so many of these external actors had literally no expertise, background, prerequisite knowledge, or even any business whatsoever implicating themselves in the reconstruction of Haiti. They became part of the quote-unquote gold rush, as U.S. Ambassador Kenneth Merton described it, for contracts to rebuild. And this situation quickly devolved into one of the most extreme examples of disaster capitalism ever seen. In addition, in late October of that year, an outbreak of cholera was introduced into the fragile post-disaster country by the United Nations stabilization mission known as MINISTA. Right now in February 2021, we're more than a year into this terrible pandemic with COVID-19. But we can't even begin to compare the effects of the coronavirus to the cholera pandemic. COVID has had minimal impact on Haiti, at least to date, with reported 240-something deaths as of January 2021, and um, it hasn't seemed to be much much of a bother to most residents. Cholera, in contrast, created terror and sickened more than 800,000 people while killing more than 10,000. And medical experts state that the toll likely far exceeds these numbers. Okay, so when elections began in late November of 2010, this is the scale and scope of what the future leader would need to step up and respond to. So, obviously, democratic elections work a bit differently in Haiti than in the U.S. Some of those differences include that it's not unusual to have a large slate of candidates. There were more than 50 candidates that year. With so many candidates, there's often a second round that decides between the top two vote earners in the first round. Mercifully, unlike in the U.S., the period for campaigning is tightly restricted to just a couple of months, Um, And there's a direct vote, so there's no mess with an electoral college, and everyone's vote theoretically carries equivalent weight. Yet only 19% of the voting-eligible population went to the polls in 2010 and 2011, so it's not exactly accurate to say that this election really represented the will of the people. And it's also not fair to claim that Haitians just aren't democratically minded, In December of 1990, for example, for the vote that brought notable leader Jean-Bertrand Aristide into the presidency, more than 54% of eligible voters turned out, which is a rate comparable with the 2012 elections in the U.S. that returned Obama to a second term. So the Haitian public is generally engaged and civically minded, just not always in the ways that traditional measures can count. So of the 50-plus candidates uh, during this cycle, most relevant for this conversation are Jude Celestin, then President René Préval's protégé and and candidate of his party, Mirland Maniga, a Sorbonne-trained constitutional law scholar who had held professorships at multiple universities throughout the the Americas, and whose husband Leslie Maniga had served as president for a few months uh, in the late 1980s before he was ousted by military uh, coup d'etat, and Michel-Joseph Martelly, better known as the artist Sweet Mickey. In addition, Wyclef Jean, 
the world-renowned musician who came to international fame with the Fugees, and who has continued on with a high-octane solo career, submitted his dossier to the electoral board, only to be denied on account of not maintaining residency. Wycliffe immediately released the song of protest, and later an album decrying what he felt was a gross injustice. He saw himself as the hope that Haiti's youth wanted and needed, and he maintained that his organization, Yeli Haiti, had been doing the charitable work of helping people get on with their lives. I talk about this whole affair more in the book. All right, so back to the main candidates. The first round on November 28, 2010, yielded Jude Celestin and Mirland Maniga as the finalists for a runoff vote. Massive protests erupted in the streets on December 9th and 10th, right as the results were announced. But a few weeks later, the results were overridden for mysterious reasons um, uh, given by the international community, and suddenly Jutz Lestin was ejected from the race and Martelly was advanced alongside Maniga. A few weeks of campaigning between Maniga and Martelly followed, which meant that there were a series of debates between a highly qualified, highly educated constitutional law scholar who happened to be a woman and a celebrity musician known for his foul-mouthed, quote-unquote, bad boy stage antics. To clarify, it's important to note that Martley has always maintained that there is a distinct difference between his stage uh, persona of Sweet Mickey and how he is in real life as Michel Joseph Martley. And then following the second round vote, Martley, of course, was declared president. So that's the context that we're working with. And I wanted you to then tell us how did the carnivalesque affect his approach to the the candidacy or to the presidency, and how did his presidency affect carnival celebrations? Yeah, really, really excellent question. So decades before this election came about, Martelly declared himself the president of Compa, which is a distinctly Haitian form of dance music. And he was at the top of the industry, one of the biggest featured acts during Carnival for many years running, um, which was perhaps foretold because he was even born during Carnival. Um, In 1993, an interviewer asked him what his greatest ambitions were, um, either to be a millionaire or to be president of the country. Marshallie replied, well, all of it, because in life, you don't ever want to think that you've arrived. You must always have goals without limits. During Carnival in 1996, he stood on top of his Carnival float as it was passing by the presidential palace and taunted then-President René Préval. Yes, he had uh, two terms, one in the 90s and then one in the aughts. Um, Préval, this is the president talking to another president. Don't forget, you're only there for five years. I'm here for life because I'm in the streets. So... It turns out that all of this jesting was rather prophetic. Martelly knew the power he had in working the crowd, and he explicitly used carnival and the carnivalesque in his campaigning process. His stage game was, and is, centered on the performance of Beatties, the vulgarities, the off-color joking. His musical lyrics are usually quite innocent, but the banter in between can be rather extreme. This is literally part of his business model. His audiences are always audibly delighted. He has observed that he knows the appropriate moments to employ Beatties, which he says helps to heat up the, uh, the crowd and to push them 
um, higher into ecstasy as they enjoy the music. Betis made it into his political performances as well, including once he was president, uh, when he would do press gatherings and would sometimes deliver colorful tirades to journalists who would call him out. Martelli is also well-practiced with polemic or polemics, which are central to Carnival, having spent years giving and receiving disses from musical rivals in Carnival song. He is very pragmatic about polemic, noting that this technique is the best advertising tool for any musical group in Haiti. I discuss the specifics about his polemics during Carnival with competitors in the book and note that this art form, in fact, shares similarities with the cockfight as ritualized masculine deep play, to recall Clifford Gertz, and is likewise a verbal battle of strategy, endurance, and aggression played out on a national stage, to recall journalist Michelle Walker's study of inter-island politics and the strongmen of Hispaniola. Martelly also practiced something called Kujai politics. From French, the phrase means something like a spontaneous bursting forth, and it was used to describe the colonial era militaristic practice in which powerful figures produced large public gatherings or ceremonies to draw in a, in a crowd with favors and fun, such as food, drink, music, and dance, in return for the public's displays of support and appreciation. Martelly held campaign rallies that were at least as much music concerts featuring fellow celebrity artists um, and drawing many thousands of spectators, whereas opponent Mirlan Maniga offered quote-unquote serious events to discuss serious issues in an intellectual way. She frankly stood little chance against the candidate who represented virility, youthful play, and an eagerness to use Betis against the establishment. Once president, Martelly carried on with these musical-political techniques in his political arsenal. He did make concerted efforts to address some su substantial issues facing the country, and he probably succeeded or made headway with some objectives while failing at others. And he became increasingly polarizing throughout his term and beyond. I do want to acknowledge the politician side of things, but I'm, I won't delve into any of that here because we're really discussing the musical processes. So with regard to actual carnival celebrations, Martelly focused on restructuring the national event in ways that repoliticized it. Previous presidents had used the carnival festivities in political ways, so this wasn't anything new. The Duvaliers, both father and son, for example, had made carnival into something that celebrated the state and their leadership of it. They both commissioned, or more accurately compelled, favorite artists to compose flattering carnival songs to sell their achievements, such as uh, completed construction on a hydroelectric, uh, hydroelectric plant or the national airport. In a different way, Martelly also used carnival as a nationalist and nationalizing project. He proposed Carnival as one way to generate a new positive image of the country and a means to rebuild the tourist sector and boost the economy. Moreover, following rhetoric prevalent at the time, he had the decentralization of the he led the decentralization of the festival away from the capital. And he established a carnival committee tied to the government to select participating acts while extending sponsorship from the state. This circumstance sometimes resulted in the exclusion of highly popular bands 
And that seemed quite clearly to correspond to whenever that year's carnival song was perceived to be a critique of the government, thus leading to strong accusations of censorship. In addition, Martelly introduced a second carnival held during July each year known as Carnaval des Fleurs, or Carnival of Flowers, which was essentially a revival from a Duvalier-era practice. Once during 2015, Martelly and one of his musical sons were involved in bringing a massive free public concert of Chris Brown and Lil Wayne to the Champs Mars in downtown Port-au-Prince. This mega concert was widely seen as a strangely scheduled event, as it corresponded with a period when the Dominican Republic was ejecting residents with Haitian heritage from the country, effectively rendering thousands of people stateless overnight, when they had really been born in the Dominican Republic and their families had often been there for generations. So, was this all done in an effort to keep the public happy and dancing, or was this a politics of distraction? And then, as one of his final acts as president, Martelly released an actual carnival song. It was a strong and vulgar critique of two highly acclaimed journalists who had regularly critiqued his political activities. It was simultaneously a campaign ad for the candidate of his party who would become his successor. This was Jovenel Moise, whose name was entirely unknown prior to the election cycle of 2015-2016, and who quickly became known as uh, the Neg Banana, uh, the Banana Man, because he was running a business uh, that had just won a major contract to export bananas to Germany. It turns out that Moise wasn't quite the businessman he made himself out to be, although he did explicitly compare himself to Trump. The election that brought Moise into power was hugely contested, and this current administration has led the country on a downward spiral toward increasing autocratic rule, corruption, economic despair, and politically motivated gang violence and kidnappings. Since 2019, political unrest and calls for Moise's resignation have been at a crisis point, and the country has, has experienced several lengthy periods of lock or lockdown, long preceding and not related to the coronavirus. As the terms of parliament members all expired when elections were not held, Moise has been ruling by decree since January of 2020. Compounding this situation exponentially, Moise failed to hold presidential elections when they were due in October of 2019, meaning that there is no successor. He is supposed to step down on February 7th of this year, um, and it is unclear what will happen next in just a couple of weeks. But there is tremendous alarm, especially given his autocratic, authoritarian tendencies. We have quite a few of those right now, right? Uh, um, yes. For those who do not know, I'm recording this from Brazil, so <laughs> that's a whole other thing. And what I find found is fascinating a, a, about all this is, is this is such a good example of how carnival takes on different meaning and has and and it it, it exists differently in different parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. another concept, yeah, that I find really interesting uh, that you discuss here and and I find it particularly useful to frame my own research, is the idea of hedonopolitics. I'm not sure I'm saying this correctly, but could you explain it to us? 
Sure. So you've already heard quite a lot about it. Um, first off, there's this uh, widely held notion that everybody, quote unquote, needs pleasure, besoin plaisir, or that one has the fundamental right to take pleasure, prone plaisir. Um, moreover, we've already discussed the notion of, of vagabondage politique or the politics of vagabondage. So this is already um, in the general lexicon. Um, we've seen that music has been explicitly used as a politics of distraction, including by an administration that pays artists to promote its causes or that organizes a second carnival during the year for the population to dance in the streets so that they uh, forget about their daily stresses. Music can equally serve as a politics of pleasure. Maybe this pleasure is necessary for managing the tensions of daily life. Um, likely, certain forms of power are derived from producing pleasure for others. Anthropologist Chelsea Kivlin uses a formulation of Hidano politics to discuss how residents of a marginalized Port-au-Prince neighborhood associated with street gangs, foot bands, and other fraternal organizations assert vernacular sovereignty in the near absence of regular services from the state. One way they do so is by organizing pleasurable outings for their neighbors, such as parties, beach visits, or soccer tournaments, which uh, contributes to a sense of political solidarity and helps the community to access support through NGOs, the state, and other actors that otherwise would be difficult for them to obtain. What's helpful about this framework is that it offers a masculinities model associated with fun and pleasure, whereas disenfranchised young men are more frequently considered through tropes of violence and death. I note, in turn, that we see a play toward political power being negotiated through articulations of pleasure in Carnival, and the insistence on play and everyone's right to take pleasure, no matter what, is about feeling human. This, uh, that is, this becomes an irrevocable claim to personhood and a demonstration of citizenship from below. But then I reconfigure hedonopolitics politics in the context of a totally different economic bracket, shifting from the so-called dispossessed classes and into the upper, um, upper middle classes uh, by pointing out that President Michel Martelly, the artist Sweet Mickey, literally made his politics off of being the hedonistic king of carnival. His musical career made him into an agent of Betis. Uh, his repertoire, his alter ego T. Simone, and his stage performance all revolve around a pleasure-seeking banter, some of it edgy and um, beyond the vulgarity. Some people find all of this offensive or problematic, and yet his fans delight in his playfulness his performative zaniness, his almost or probably crossing the line linguistic and possibly other sins. Um, this is what they want and expect from him as an artist. And in some ways, it's as though the populace granted him a license to serve as fans' mouthpiece, uh, to blow off steam and express frustration or maybe even dissent. Kind of like a guilty pleasure, but one that has purpose. Maybe some of these associations came with him when the public hired him for the job of the presidency. At least, this certainly isn't the only recent example of a foul-mouthed celebrity stepping into the highest office in a nation. And it seems to be a compelling model for many. It probably is related to why, during election season, people were telling me something to the effect of, 
uh, quote, I'm voting for the vagabond so that he can respond to all the other vagabonds in the country. Uh, but on the other hand, you have traced here uh, a long trajectory uh, of musique engagée. I, again, please correct me if I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, oh, but it's uh, politically or socially engaged music. Could you define it for us? And could you tell us how some musicians have used Carnival as a means of criticizing or challenging those in power in different moments in Haiti's history? Yes. So when considered alongside Hidano politics, in Mizik and Gaije, we see something very different. On the surface, it seems like st straightforward protest music, but it's hard to pin down given the subtly varied interpretations and associations that the musicians themselves all have. I have defined it as a genre-crossing expressive form featuring politically and socially engaged music that is extended from the colonial period to the present. And then I note that this uh, requires more attention, as is made clear from the fact that most of the musical texts explored in this book represent distinctly political acts of musicking or are explicitly inspired by politics. And yet few people would consider all of the music discussed here to be music engage. Moreover, some artists routinely associated with engage do not in fact identify themselves as such, while others firmly associate their own work with that tradition or see themselves in the tra that trajectory, even if audiences don't really think of them in that way. In short, there's extensive debate over what engage is, musically and politically, in word and in action, who is actually engage, why it's important, and who gets to make those calls. I don't cast myself as an arbiter in this case, rather I choose to listen and to present varied perspectives along the spectrum or spiral of musico-political activity and action. I can say that one singer-songwriter everyone associates with Mizik Angaji is the folk music icon Mano Shaomain, who rose to prominence as a dominant voice of resistance against the Duvalier dictatorship and who was forced into exile for singing. With just guitar and voice, he also raged against imperialist Captain America and the interventions of quote-unquote world organizations. Through an unforeseen turn of events, per perhaps the result of a jest even, um, in the mid-1990s he wound up becoming mayor of Port-au-Prince. His campaign for the election consisted of a single campaign appearance, which was really a free outdoor concert on the Champ de Mars. Um, he was elected by a majority maybe because the, pop, the popular perception was that he represented a break from the weary politics of violence and corruption. While he served his full term, this really wasn't his calling in life. Now, with um, this question of Mizik Engage, we might also trace back to Auguste de Pradin, who was the grandfather to um, Michel Martelly and also to uh, another major musician I profile in depth in this book, Richard A. Morse of the band Ram. De Pradine, known as Kanjo, was a beloved singer uh, of tremendous stature in the nation's history, active in the early to mid 20th century, whose song Angelica remains among the most significant contributions to the national repertoire. In it, Kanjo sings about the wife of the U.S. Marine commander, telling her to go back home to her mother's house. 
While the lyrics seem to mock the arrogant wife's poor housekeeping skills and her apparent refusal to care for her husband, the Haitian public heard the real critique loud and clear as U.S. Marines go home, leave us alone. And then we might leap forward to Beethoven Oba, who was a protégé of sorts to Manoshar Mine, and uh, incidentally, who has just released a, a fabulous new album titled Bon Bagai, which means good things. Um, Oba's oeuvre thoroughly reflects a highly conscious, liberatory approach to music making. But as a young artist, Oba composed a song titled Plaisir Misère, um, Pleasures of Poverty, for the International Youth Year in 1985, a United Nations proclamation that President for Life Jean-Claude Duvalier embraced in terrible contradiction to the increasing hunger riots across Haiti. The song decries the starvation that many citizens were suffering under the dictatorship while sardonically reassuring listeners that those suffering would forget the knots in their stomachs as soon as the Rara bands would pass by. I find so much meaning in the song that Oba's lyrics open and close this book. And then the bulk of the, uh, the text is devoted to music and musicians that speak back to the government in various ways. Um, and this is really where the musical cartography that we've discussed comes into play um, as a guide to listening and listening across different perspectives. One artist I introduce in the book is Matthias Dandor or Matthias Goldteeth of the comedy team Matthias and Georges. In 2015, he and his team released a music video called Vote Moi, or Vote For Me, which immediately went viral in Haiti and which subsequently resulted in a series of hysterical carnival music videos that unfolded over several years about a preposterous candidacy and election to the presidency for a bumbling, made-up politician. It was incredibly intelligent satire referencing the real President Michel Martelly, then in office. When I interviewed Mathias, uh, whose given name is Jean Toussaint-France, uh, most recently, he stressed that there has to be a subtle delivery for engagé messages. One can't be too harsh with criticism because it will just turn off the recipient uh, from listening and from potentially changing. And so his goal with this series was straight-up humor um, with the, the criticism uh, laid underneath. Since then, however, with increasing concerns about the political and economic circumstances of Haiti today, Matias has shifted his outlook dramatically and he is now overtly activist in his protest against the rising authoritarianism of the state. I also present the music of Don Cato and the roots reggae rap group Brothers Posse. As the Martelly administration gained steam, Don Cato became an outspoken critic of the president and brothers Posse repeatedly denounced the government and its perceived wrongdoings uh, through their carnival music videos. Don Cato, or Antonio Cherami, took his political convictions further by running for office and by being elected to the Haitian parliament in 2015 as senator. While in office, Don Cato and brothers Posse released a carnival song titled Dance Petou, which basically broke the news to the public about a massive government scandal surrounding the Petrocaribe alliance with Venezuela. Effectively, this alliance entailed a favorable oil agreement intended to foster state-directed development projects across the region. But it turns out that somewhere between 1.6 and 3 billion US dollars had somehow gone missing from the agreement, and the conditions behind this mismanagement of funds 
have led to devastating economic consequences that will be felt for decades. Don Cato was in the know. He served on the Congressional Commission that investigated the Petrocaribe situation. So this music video was certainly a powerful way to bring important information to his constituents. Another example of musique engagée comes from the Grammy-nominated Roots music band Bukwan Experience. Bukwan Experience released an extraordinarily successful uh, video in 1990 called Kermpasote, My Heart Doesn't Leap, I'm Not Afraid, uh, which is often credited with toppling the widely dis disliked government of General Prosper Avril in a coup d'etat. 25 years later, their 2015 carnival video Pepe Hier, uh, Yesterday's Cast-Offs, exploded in popularity and still strongly resonated with listeners, especially in the post-earthquake context. That song calls out the politicians who are big eaters, whose avaricious quest for money and power has led them to uh, suck dry uh, Haiti's resources. A counterpart to Bukman Experience is the band Ram, another internationally beloved pillar of the Haitian music scene, which put out a 2014 carnival song uh, titled Sa Pas Sao Te Di, That's Not What You Said. Lead singer Richard Morse had accepted a political appointment in President Michel Martelly's administration. Martelly and Morse share grandfather Auguste Puradine, the aforementioned famed singer better known as Kanjo, making these two musicians first cousins with a musically rich lineage. Yet Morse came to uh, disapprove of the ways Things were being done in the Martelly government and abruptly left his post with a public announcement of his displeasure. This song from 2014 features the line, Cousin, that's not what you told me. And in fact, the song was already long existing in the Haitian folkloric vodou popular song repertoire, quite possibly going back generations. But its salience to the current moment was not overlooked. And it seemed to listeners to be Morse's uh, reproach of his own cousin. I'll give the final words for now to BIC, or Roosevelt Seyant, a prolific song, uh, singer-songwriter celebrated for his linguistically acute lyrics that address some of Haiti's most urgent issues. He leans toward a definition of musique engagée as a form of radical activism and sees the rise of Manuel Charlemagne's engagé expression as an instinctive survival mechanism to the suffocating oppression of the Duvalier years. BIC follows along in this lineage and has so many songs that cut to the core. One is called Deoa, or Outside, which expresses a range of frustrations about how Haiti on the outside is uh, not beautiful because of too much trash, too many youth without ac access to education, too many hospital patients who have to beg for, me beg for medicine. Another is Yunti Calquil, or A Little Calculation, which was composed shortly after the earthquake and which essentially asks, how many bodies must we have to fill our cemeteries? How many buckets do we need to catch all the rainwater? How many pol political parties force us to flee into exile before we do something about it? Like most of BIC's repertoire, these songs call for accountability and change. I really wish I could go on much more about each of these artists right now, but there's a lot more in the book, and these are just a few prime examples of the consciousness-raising songs of Mizik Engage that I discuss in a lot greater detail. So returning, uh, returning to your, your question about what Mizik Engage is, perhaps 
one of the best ex- explanations I encountered uh, came from Michel Martelly himself. He distinguishes that music social is when you inspire people to be better, to take responsibility, whereas music engage is about creating revolution. And that really resonates. As the telling goes, it was the beating of the drums that launched the Haitian Revolution in August of 1791. And so this much mythologized account of the emerging nation also includes an account of the emerging strains of music engage as a musical, politically energized force. As I told you uh, before, I from your book, not only I got you know amazing information about this place, it inspired me on my own work on carnival, but I also got an amazing playlist. So thank you so much. <laughs> of course. I hope everybody will go and listen to some of this music because that's really where the heart of all of this work is. I on purpose left this question for the end of our interview because you left that for the end of your book. So could you tell us about the meaning of the book's title and why did you decide to uh, discuss it in the end of the, the book? Sure. After the dance, uh, the drums are heavy. Après dans tambulou is a popular Haitian proverb that references those communal scenes of celebration, such as carnival, where everyone is up and dancing, singing, playing, and having fun. And the labor of carrying around those drums that drive the pace and keep up the energy seems so easy that you don't even have to think about it. You're being carried along by the excitement and and energy and synergy and commitment of of the crowd, and you don't notice that the straps holding your instrument to your body are digging into your shoulders. You are so caught up in the moment that you aren't aware of the burden uh, you are um, carrying on your back. It's only afterwards when you're facing that very normal period of letdown and fatigue that comes when the festivities end that you suddenly realize the weight of those drums. Similarly, if you are protesting with a crowd, marching down the street, let's say um, Black Lives Matter or climate change, when you are surrounded by people who are in solidarity with you, it all somehow feels a bit easier. When you go home from the march, as we all inevitably have to for rest, it then dawns on you just how much work remains to make true, genuine change toward justice. So after the dance, the drums are heavy. So a partial analog to this proverb might be many hands make light work, which, as in English, is also a common Haitian proverb. But après dance tambulou places emphasis on the responsibility that follows the celebration, and the harder task of continuing to carry on. I've encountered many meaningful metaphorical interpretations of the phrase, several of which I describe in the final chapter. But I was truly struck when someone made direct connection between Opre Dance Tambulou and the Haitian Revolution. Of course, the years 1791 to 1804 involved a turbulent, exhausting, and expensive effort of ridding Saint-Domingue of, white, uh, of French white supremacist rule, which had resulted in one of the most brutal regimes of plantation-based slavery ever known. But this metaphorical interpretation is definitely not about equating this fight for basic human rights and dignity with a lighthearted party. Rather, it's about the observation that even after the success of the independence, the whole Western world conspired in delivering punishment to the small black nation that dared to challenge the global economic system, literally built on breaking the backs of certain people for the advantages of others. 
France's extortion of Haiti out of today's equivalent of $28 billion for the loss of its, um, its colony, decades of other nations, including the U.S., refusing to acknowledge the nation's sovereignty, and strict embargoes on trade that incapacitated the local economy all lie among the tremendous weight of consequences that Haitians have shouldered up to today. The country is routinely slurred as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere without any regard for the fact that these conditions are of intentional construction. Still, the struggle continues today for justice and truth, respect and recognition. And the essence of this book is about that fight for fundamental humanity. I leave the explanation until the end of the book because without the context and breadth and depth of all of the interlocking parts that come before, the full weight of significance isn't felt. And it's such a beautiful expression, and I can really connect it to all the movements here in Bahia. So, uh, but that's another conversation that we will have, <laughs> I'm sure, uh, some other time. Sure. <laughs> Are you working on anything new? that you would mind sharing with us? Oh, always. Um, I always have several totally different things going on at once. I continue to work on my book on music disaster and development, which furthers the work that After the Dance starts. And right now I'm on sabbatical leave as a fellow at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, where I'm working on a project titled Against Scorched Earth, Haitian Vodou as Sacred Ecology. This theme opens up exploration of how humanity, the divine, and the environment intersect in powerful ways, with the sacred vodou drum, the tambou, seen at the, the center of these intersections. It's a multimodal effort involving written publications, the production of ecologically relevant music videos in partnership with Haitian artists and activists, the encouragement of various tree planting initiatives, and a museum exhibit about Haiti's sacred drums and trees in the face of centuries of deforestation and environmental degradation. In short, um, this is scholarship and public-facing activism toward environmental justice. I, I can't wait to read all of this <laughs> and, and see all the other work that you're doing. So I'm really looking forward to that. But Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Isabel. It has really been such an honor to spend all of this time with you. And I'm really, really looking forward to your own forthcoming book on Carnival in Mobile, Alabama, and send my very, very best wishes to you as you tie up the finishing touches on this manuscript. Thank you so much. <laughs> and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Rebecca Dirksen about her book, After the Dance, the Drums Are Heavy, Carnival, Politics, and Musical Engagement in Haiti. It was published by the Oxford University Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.